0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode two hundred and thirty-eight: Moonshine, Day Trippers, and the Birth of NASCAR. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey, everyone! Happy Friday! I am so excited to share this week's interview episode with Will Edmonds, who produces an Atlanta history account called Anecdotal ATL so Will and I met a few months ago, and he said he had a story that was too long for his one-minute videos, but it would be perfect for a podcast. And here we are. Many people know the basic history of NASCAR and how it came from moonshiners and prohibition and stock car racing. But what shocked me, and will shock you, I promise, is that Atlanta could have been the home of NASCAR, a title held by Daytona Beach, Florida today. And we were so close. And the two men that prevented this from happening were two of Atlanta's biggest names from history a mayor and a journalist. Will starts talking about moonshine history pre Civil War through the legal liquor trade, how and why it centers in Dawsonville, Georgia. And then we get into some colorful characters like Raymond Parks, Walter Day, Carl Lloyd Say, uh, Roy Hall, and Red Vote. So without further ado, hope you enjoy. I, I just want to start by saying so many people send me your account and they mm. go, have you seen this? <laughs> and I'm like, I know him. Like We <laughs> met in real life. Yeah, And then everyone gets so happy.
1: <laughs> I love to hear that. I love to hear that. It's... It's fun. It's got to a point now where I do get recognized quite a lot (gasps) when I'm out. Really? Yeah, which is quite nice. People come up to me and I can usually tell if I'm in a restaurant because what they'll do is they'll start to listen for an English (laughs) accent to hear if it's me. (laughs) And I can always tell I'm like, oh, that that person's listening to me. And for the first time ever, it's hard to do this in a podcast and explain, but I was at a restaurant the other day and I saw someone flip their phone up like like, uh, vertically and I'm like, Oh, I think that person just took a picture of me. I'm like, they could have asked. So it's, it's, it's weird. It's like it's not being famous, but it's like being yeah. just a little bit Atlanta. Atlanta famous. Atlanta Listen, famous. I
0: saw people all the time. Like Tom Cruise could walk by, I'd be like, whatever. But the first time I saw Terry Kearns out in real life, I mean, I almost fainted. Like, and he messaged me. I remember I was like, I made it. Terry Kearns messaged me on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's it. I made it. You know. So for those people that don't know, tell us who you are and then what your project's called.
1: Uh, My name is Will Edmonds. I'm obviously you can hear my voice and hear that I'm English. I've been living in the U.S. for 23 years now. I am a sports journalist at CNN. I'm also a college professor teaching uh, sports broadcasting at Kennesaw State University, and I'm a local historian now. For the last few years, Uh, I do this project on social media called Anecdotal Atlanta, where I tell interesting. It's sort of what I consider. Anti history, you know, what you do is you sort of give the full story. I just pick out one tiny bit,
0: yeah. Well, and see, I feel I'm like, oh, I'm really condensing it into 20 minutes, but you're doing a minute and under.
1: Typically, I aim for exactly a minute, yeah, because that seems right. That was the original idea I had,
0: yeah. I always joke, I was, I talked about you on the podcast, I was just on the Atlanta Story podcast. You know, we all do different things Mm -hmm. and there's something for everybody, you know, some people will read the 700 page book. Some people only do 20 minutes listening to me. Some people will only watch a video. Some people do YouTube. And like, I think there should be 10 people doing all those things, you know, because the more people that know the history, the better. Um, Well, that's that leads us to why we're here, because when I met you. And then I've been talking to you, whatever. Mm -hmm. You're like, I have a story and it is really good for a podcast. And I've wanted to get dive into this before because I've talked about prohibition and I've briefly mentioned how it really ties into moonshine, bootlegging, race car, NASCAR, all that stuff. And so you've done all this research, which mm-hmm. is great. I, I did nothing. <laughs> and you are here to tell me. Well,
1: we tried to do a little bit of research a minute ago and we're going to get into that as well. Cause there's, there's a bit of the story that's missing, which is, could be fascinating. We, tried. we only we tried.
0: had a little bit of time. So we, we were on ancestry for about 15 minutes before starting, but to t- TBD, we're going to find that out later.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. So this, uh, it's interesting that a I'm English, But I am a sports journalist, so even though NASCAR, it seems like I'm the wrong voice. (laughs) Talk about NASCAR. It is slightly more in my world. And um, I discovered this in researching just a single story, which comes up in here. But as I was researching, I was like, God, there's like four different stories here. But anyway, yeah, so yeah, you know, everyone. I feel like... um, NASCAR coming from prohibition is one of those things that everyone kind of knows but no one knows the full story. I agree. And I don't think people realize how involved Atlanta was and how it had it not been for a couple of people it could have been entirely in Atlanta. Really? It could have been a pure Atlanta story. This could be the home of NASCAR had it not been for a politician and a journalist on a moral crusade and just some incredible people.
0: Okay, so where do we start? Like, do we, are you going to even, because let me just recap the basics of Prohibition for people that we don't, people don't realize. Do you want to do it? That's what I was planning to yes. do. but you can
1: fill me no, in. You no, can no, fill no, me no, I, I can really,
0: I mean, I talk about Atlanta because we started Prohibition Fulton County when Dry in 1886, mm-hmm. and we didn't even nationally, uh, uh, sorry, National Repeal Day, we were after that. We so were. I, I was telling people, I was like, we were doing prohibition way, way before, before and just after the rest of
1: the nation. Yeah, so my story really begins before the Civil War. So mm-hmm. the farmers in North Georgia, um, they had found quite quickly that by taking their excess apples and peaches and corn, they could make corn whiskey, apple and peach brandy. And they found that actually the markup And the profit margin was much higher than their produce. For whatever reasons, I guess it lasts longer, easier to transport or whatnot. And so a lot of farms were doing this. However, when the Civil War started, moonshine and all liquors were taxed differently in order to fund the war effort. Now... These were not people that were particularly happy about a new tax coming along, certainly at that time. We're talking rural Uh, North Georgia. Rural North Georgia. (laughs) Well, and Atlanta too. Basically, everywhere around here, all the people that were making moonshine on the side were suddenly having to get taxed on that. They felt no. So no one was paying it. So, the federal um, tax collectors were sending people out to essentially destroy any distilleries that were not paying the taxes, which in Atlanta was easy. They were easy to find, they were big warehouses, all these things. But up in Dawsonville, up in North Georgia, these were hard places to find. These were the ones that survived. Interesting. So, by the end of the Civil War, um, there were very, very few moonshine distilleries in Atlanta. So we think of it as a North Georgia thing for whatever reason, these things were everywhere until the tax collectors came in and destroyed the ones that were easy to find. That's why it became this sort of hidden in the valleys of North Georgia oh. kind of situation. So obviously the war ends, the dev- you know, the economy of the South is devastated and these North Georgia, um, moonshiners that becomes like an essential part of survival. You know, that is the main income coming in and they put it, um, they're transporting a lot of stuff around it's very slow and whatnot but you still have the federal uh, tax collectors coming in trying to make money and at this point there is an arms race going on so the federal tax collectors they're starting to be armed the moonshiners are armed the shootouts happening
0: and this is um, like after civil
1: war like this, this is, is still after 1870s, the civil war this is like 1870s so by the 1880s the opinion on moonshiners had changed this used to be your local farmers that were making money on the side, getting you cheap alcohol. Suddenly, people start to see these people as criminals, as oh. scary, as outlaws. And there was this whole movement happening. Now, this coincided, of course, with the uh, temperance movement. There was a national thing happening, which was, uh, in addition to other things, total abstinence from alcohol. And this was happening a lot. And you mentioned, was it 1885?
0: 1885 is when they decided, but it didn't kick in until July of 1886. Right.
1: So 1885, it was the, I have the name of it here, the local general option liquor yes, bill. Yes, they
0: basically voted for it. I mean,
1: they let every county vote yes. for it themselves. Fulton County, the next year, voted. To go dry. To go dry. Now this actually ties into another story we're not talking about today, which is why Coca-Cola went yes, yes. non-alcoholic. Yes. And lots of people know there was cocaine in it, but it actually originally started with yes. wine plus cocaine and had to get rid of the wine because of that law. It
0: was a temperance drink.
1: It was a temperance drink, yeah. exactly. Um so, as you mentioned just then, you know, Georgia went statewide with prohibition in what, 1908, you no, know I have. Which was yeah. twelve years before it went nationally, and then when the country repealed it in 1933, Georgia kept it on the books for another 5 years, yeah, which is crazy. So when you consider <laughs> that moonshine was illegal because of they weren't paying the taxes and because of prohibition for 76 years in Georgia.
0: Wow.
1: That liquor was illegal. That gave these people a lot of time to sort of get good at selling. 76 years, that's generations. That is. Yeah, that's like, that's like... people that like lived an entire long you know, life back then, a very long life, not knowing anything but selling illegal liquor and their parents and their children. So it's crazy. So 1908, the launch of the Model T.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Huge change in automobile. Five years later, the assembly line was created. That's where Henry Ford realized how to make cars cheap. Two years later, 1915, the Ford Atlanta assembly plant opened right near Ponce City Market right now, right on the Beltline, it's the Ford factory lofts, right by the murder corridor, the, mer- the building is still there. So by 1915, Atlanta was starting to get a lot of very cheap cars. And so what the drive- delivery drivers call called is trippers. Do you know that word?
0: No, it was for like day tripping.
1: Tr- day tripping. Trippers yeah. is the name for moonshine delivery drivers. I didn't know that word until I, I started either. researching this. I feel like I've heard of you know moonshiners, rum runners. Um,
0: yeah, but trippers. No,
1: trippers, I like that. Trippers. So the trippers... Um, Dawsonville was the epicenter of moonshining. In my research, is that what and you why? found as well?
0: I've heard of it that way. Uh,
1: my guess is for a few reasons. One, it was very well hidden uh, in terms of the tax collectors finding it. But also, you had was it Highway hey. Highway Nine, the Whiskey Trail, I oh, guess it was called there. Okay, okay. Um, was a road that went there, so it was it was accessible from Atlanta. It's only sixty miles, which even if you're on horses, was doable in I don't know, a day, yeah, or whatnot. But now that we had these cars. It was doable in just two hours. 1932. 1932. So we've kind of skipped on towards the end of Prohibition, and Ford releases the V8. Mm. V8 is important for a few reasons. One, it was the first car really built for speed. And secondly, and more importantly, it could be engineered. This was a car that you could take apart, rebuild. Parts were available. It was kind of a, a fun car to play with. So I just have a list here of a few things that were done to it. They replaced the carburetor with larger carburetors, larger pistons, they altered the crankshaft for speed. That made it faster. One of the problems is it's carrying gallons and gallons of liquid, right? So they had to have stiffer stock stiffer shock absorbers, overinflate the tires and stronger wheels so it could handle the weight of the liquor. But they also had to add springs from the old Model T so that when police cars looked at it, it didn't look like it was dragging on the ground with, you know, like I don't know how much a car full of liquid weighs. A know. lot, right? I feel like when you you know when you buy a ton of water from the grocery store and you realize how far you parked away is how you realize how heavy liquids are you know but i can't imagine a car full of liquor back then so all this stuff was doable and the moonshiners were very very good at sort of going back and forth and uh, there was this whole arms race with law enforcement now the highway nine the whiskey trail um, it was very, very dangerous and dark. And actually, a lot of people died, law enforcement and moonshiners. But despite the risks, moonshiners felt that it was worth it. So at 1930, a tripper with their sort of, ed- you know, basically an uneducated worker could make 50 times more by being a tripper. They wow. could make $1,000 a month as opposed to $20 a month.
0: Oh, my god!
1: So it's kind of worth it, right? Now, remember in the 1880s, I said that people started to see these people as outlaws. Well, that's because liquor was still legal, right? Like, they could get liquor elsewhere. They didn't didn't feel like shootouts were necessary. Now we're in Prohibition. The only place they can get liquor is from these guys. And they see these guys taking risks coming down to Atlanta to get them liquor. And they're starting to be seen as heroes. Oh. So now we're going to start talking about some interesting characters in this whole situation. The first one we're going to talk about is Raymond Parks. Now, we briefly spoke about him before we got into this story. He's from Dawsonville. He was three generations removed from gold miners who had moved there. to.
0: Yes, because the first gold rush was in Dahlonega.
1: Exactly. Uh, He was born in 1914. He was the oldest of 16 children. Now, here's where it gets interesting.
0: Parks was the oldest of 16 children. Correct.
1: His father, Alfred, had 16 children, six of them with a woman named Layla who we believe passed away uh, around 1924 when um, Raymond was young. Then, and this is where the research sort of fell short a bit today, and it gets really this is where complicated. we ran out of time. We ran he's, out where, of time. It's also just really complicated. <laughs> Alfred then married Layla's sister, Isla, and had 10 children. Now, we're not sure if it was six children and then 10 children. Yeah,
0: sequential. like, Or
1: when... <laughs> if he was sort of going back and forth and having children with both because... We're seeing in the records online that don't quite match up and the mother's names aren't right. We'll get to the fact that back then, 100 years ago in Dorsetville, it seemed like everyone was related. Oh, God. Which would make sense if you're having 16 kids and your auntie is also your stepmom. Oh, and, you my know, God, it's, the
0: stereotype. It's so bad. But... I apologize.
1: I'm sure it's not like that now. I'm sure it's very <laughs> modern and Very progressive. Out, Very progressive in that respect. So this family were perpetually poor, despite the gold rush, you know, there were several generations gone from that. Uh, There was a lot of crime, a lot of alcoholism, but even at a very young age, people said that Raymond, Ray, was an ambitious guy. He always talked about moving to Atlanta and becoming a successful businessman. Now, when he was 14 years old, he was driving back from Atlanta where he picked up some liquor for his father, Alfred, um, and he got arrested. He got arrested and sentenced to three months in the county lockup. Now, you think for a 14 year old, this will be the worst thing that ever happened to him. This is the best thing that ever happened to young Raymond Parks. There he met, he shared a cell with a guy called Walter Day, who had offered him a job in his moonshine distillery just outside Atlanta. He was like, great. So he left home. As soon as he got, actually, my understanding is Walter Day left the prison first, came and picked him up when it was time for him to go, and he never went home. He oh, went so straight he never to, the went to
0: Dawsonville. He stayed.
1: That's one report okay. I read. He probably did. But the, the way it made it out is as like, soon as he was done with prison, he was done with Dawsonville, he went there. Okay. And he went to this distillery and he started working there. He also had an uncle in the city of Atlanta who ran an auto shop. And so Raymond was very, very hardworking. He was a very dedicated, very smart guy. Apparently he became a master moonshiner. He was the best around and started his own side mind, uh, moonshining um, operation. Um, and then he gets a job with his uncle as an auto car mechanic in the city. Okay. So his day-to-day was during the day, he would fix cars up, make them faster, do all those things that people do with their cars. And in the evenings, he was running moonshine back and forth between the city and wherever he was making it. Oh. He was working around the clock. He also ran a lottery.
0: Oh, yeah, I did an episode about the lottery. The lottery here, Yeah, so that, oh, so you, yeah. well, thing, which but, is... The, the un, you're talking about like the un, uh, underground yes. lottery. Yeah, yeah the numbers lo- game.
1: Yes, he was doing lots of things. But he also started legitimate stuff. You know, he had garages that he opened and restaurants. He was basically a businessman. He was he had legal businesses, but he loved his illegal
0: businesses. He was, businesses. Hustling. He was and hustling. He was
1: hustling, and the illegal businesses were very profitable. So much so, and he was so busy that he decided he no longer had time to drive. He could no longer be a tripper. So, when you have a thousand siblings so he went back to dawsonville and he picked up two of his cousins to be trippers these are two of the best characters we're going to get to so the first one we're going to talk about carl d lloyd c or say i think it's say known as lloyd lightning say apparently he was an incredibly skilled driver some say he was like the best a lot of people said they'd ever seen. He was considered a veteran tripper by the time he was 15 years old.
0: Oh my gosh, this is crazy. But what
1: made him great is the fact that he was very, very charming. He had a way of disarming the police. There's a couple of stories about this. Uh, one story goes that uh, the police, he passed the police going 120 miles an hour on the way back to Dawsonville. And the police, police just looked at him and said, Ah. <laughs> It's fine. <laughs> We're not going to catch him. He's a good guy. We know what he's doing. There's nothing we can do. Then there is another cousin. Very different. Roy Hall. Rapid Roy or Reckless Roy, as this guy's known. He's described as obscenely handsome and absurdly cocky. Now, we'll say if you Google um, Roy Hall driver, you can find pictures of this guy. He doesn't look like he belongs a hundred years ago. He is a very oh, handsome Oh, he's like man. modernly handsome? He's a modernly handsome oh. guy. Um, I was, when I was going over this story uh, with a friend of mine earlier, I showed a picture to her, I was like, he's handsome, right? She's like, yeah, he's definitely handsome. It's like, and she looks at him in the way, like, he's sort of the I was like, oh, he's got game. <laughs> he was known to say, when my time, when it's my time to go, I'll go. Until then, I have nothing to lose. He was very unlike his cousins. You know, Raymond, very smart, hardworking guy. Lloyd say. Very charming, very presentable guy. Then there was Roy Hall. He's the one that mothers did not want their daughters to date. Uh, he had developed a co- way of taking corners while, as a tripper, which, and I don't understand racing.
0: Oh, I, I don't understand cars at all, so you and can say so, whatever.
1: So I'm trying to boil this down to, and I apologize if you're an expert on this, but essentially... The way he took the line for a corner, he developed a way of accelerating where most people break, oh. which made him impossible to catch. So, like, it's it means pro-
0: physics, right? I mean, he just knew how to he do it, He knew how to right. do it. So
1: when everyone broke to take a corner, he would swerve and accelerate and do it. That's the way I'm sure if you're into modern car racing, it's probably normal and standard now. But he was credited with kind of inventing this, or at least in this world. Um, lots of agents, lots of police officers hurt themselves chasing him he was one that they would chase they wouldn't chase his cousin but they would chase roy hall because they knew that he might crash into a tree and they might get him so raymond parks had the two best young charismatic fun interesting reckless drivers uh, working for him but he needed a mechanic and there was only really one mechanic in town Louis jerome vote known as red because of his red hair he opened a garage on spring street now i'm going to divert for a second here when I was researching this story, and as I'm sure you've experienced this all the time, you kind of assume that buildings are gone. And I'm trying to work out where this garage was. There's a single picture of it outlined. You can see blurred uh, well, name of a street there. I know it's on Spring Street, and I can see this other street. So I know it's on the intersection there. And I'm, I'm trying to find old maps because now the way that that road is it could only be one corner it's a t-junction however the picture was taken before the highway was there which means i figured that there was probably a crossroads there and it could be one of two corners and i'm looking through maps looking through maps and i can't find one for it would have been 1940 where the picture was taken before the highway was there and i find a map from 1940 atlanta and nothing makes sense now i'm sure when you look at old maps you're looking at the the triangle right you do everything from the triangle out yes yes and my, I was losing my mind looking at this thing. I couldn't find anything on the map. I'm like, this isn't Atlanta, but the triangle's there. I'm like, it's, I've looked at so many old maps, it doesn't make sense to me. And I finally figured out, and I'd not seen this, this map was Like it was pointing. facing... East was at the top. Oh, the west. It blew my mind. So once I... That honestly, I wasted about three hours <laughs> going through maps oh, and standing there going like, yes. "What is going on?" Yes. Found the intersection. Figured, oh yes, it was a crossroads. That road was there. It Could be one of two corners. And so I'm just like, "Oh man, I'm gonna." There's just no way of knowing which one it was. It never occurred to me to go down there. I go down there, and the building's still there. It's the law office of Law and Moran. So if you are by the Varsity, getting on eighty-five in sort of Midtown downtown, there is a giant statue holding of Atlas the- holding the globe. Yeah. That building is this garage, owned by RedVote. And the building still, it looks like it, you know, the old garage doors are now windows, but it looks exactly the same. Anyway, this guy, he built a reputation for developing the Ford V8. That was the car, you know, that you could make faster and whatnot, and everyone would take their V8s there to get them faster and whatnot. And Raymond Parks, he would take his cars there, and he was sort of the favored customer, because even though this guy had a very thriving business, and was dealing with everyone, the moonshiners, the trippers, they had cash, cash in hand, you know what I mean? Like that was easy money. They weren't having to deal with, you know, any credit or anything like that. I don't even how it worked back then, but they had a lot of money. Yeah. And yeah, they I'm also sure wanted their cars fixed quick fit quickly. Yeah, yeah, and they
0: wanted probably some cool stuff done to their cars. Exactly. So I'm sure it was they also. Were,
1: they were fun to work with. Um, however, the police had also heard of Red Vote, and so the police would take their cars there, unaware of his side business. So what Red Vote did, and this is the line in the book that was just brushed over, he built a false wall in his garage. At the front of the garage, he had the police cars and he had the respectable citizens of Atlanta's cars being fixed in the front. In the back was full of all the rum runners, the moonshiners, the trippers' cars out back. And they never knew that they were there. No. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. I love that. I I'm love a, that too. It's so, so cool. So... Red Vote was the mechanic. He was the best mechanic in, in town. He had this business, and he and Raymond—sorry, um, he and Raymond Vote formed a friendship, or at least as good a friendship you could have. Red Vote apparently never smiled. Always had a cigarette. Was a very uh, dour person, not a fun person to be around. But by all accounts, a genius. So. We have the economic reason to get moonshine down to the city. We have the reason why law enforcement are trying to stop them. We have the invention of cars. Now comes racing. The Model T, when that came out, people were already starting to race cars, but there weren't that many of them around really like the V8. At daytime, races, informal races were happening in cow pastures and fields. At night, it was empty dirt roads. The trippers loved this. They would finish their work and then they'd go race. They absolutely loved it because these guys were, were, you know, they lived on the edge. Um, this grew in popularity spectators came more and more in and around atlanta money was collected from spectators and just you know impromptu given to the winners and then promoters came along started charging for tickets they'd bring in sponsors custom tracks were made events were marketed stock car racing was born now, I didn't know what stock car racing really was until I started working. Do you know the difference between stock car racing and professional racing?
0: No idea. Or at least
1: what it was. No so, idea. So, Formula One, IndyCar, things like that. These are race cars built for racing. Stock car racing is cars that you and I can go buy, fix up with parts that we can have access to. This is. These are... The people's cars racing kind of makes sense, right? That's why NASCARs look like our cars. Now I understand that those ones are built purposefully for racing, but in theory, stock car racing is just that. These are stock cars; these are normal cars. So when people went out to watch these races, they're cheering on people that raced their cars. Oh, you know, they could relate to yeah. it. You know, also they were go out and they want to buy these cars. You know, they, you know, it was it's much more something that people connect can connect with. So, 1936, the first pro stock car race happened. Now, this is in Daytona, and we'll get to Daytona later. Daytona are the bad guys in this story. (laughs) Not really, but kind of, kind of. The first race in 1936 was a disaster. The track didn't work, it was kind of made out of sand. A lot of the cars didn't finish, they had to be dragged out because it was a mess. They did another race soon after that, another disaster. It was a massive money loss you know, no one came to watch. The third race was a bit of a success. 5,000 people showed up and at least all the cars finished. And so people are like, okay, there is a business here, you know, people, we can do this. So the next race after that, so three races in Daytona, then we moved to Atlanta, November 11th, 1938 at Lakewood Speedway. This is a one mile oval track, a former fairground horse track. Remember, 5,000 people turned up at what they deemed a very successful Daytona. 20,000 people showed up in Atlanta for the first ever race. In Lakewood? Lakewood. In Woodyear 1938. 1938. Wow. Lakewood Speedway, 20,000 fans. Most of the drivers were trippers. That's the moonshiners. Those are the delivery guys. Lloyd C., now 18 years old. That's the guy. That was the charming guy that could win An over the cops. old
0: 18. <laughs> like this.
1: And I'm sure you find this when you research, like the little details in the story of beautiful. So he won the race, but here's what's beautiful about it. He had a broken arm and had to race with one arm. So he's not even changing gears with one arm and doing the other, he's doing it all with one arm. And he got two flat tires during the race and still managed to win. Apparently he was just so much better than everyone else that he's sort of like manoeuvring. Now, one thing I couldn't find out is which arm was broken. My guess is it had to have been his left, left arm, yeah, yeah, because he couldn't have been reaching over. But who knows? This guy <laughs> was so skillful that he did it. So his 18-year-old Lloyd say he won the race with one arm. Soon after was the second race in Atlanta. This time his cousin Roy Hall, who was leading the race most of the way, just before the finish crashed into a fence. However. Still managed to finish in second place. At this point, because of the success of these races, a super team was formed. A super team was formed. Raymond Parks was buying cars, Red Vote turned them into racing cars, Lloyd Say and Roy Hall raced them. This four man team dominated the sport for three years. Everywhere they went, they won everything. They were the stars. Uh, during this time, Hall actually developed a style of racing and if this is not true, I apologise. Everyone writes this, so I have to assume it is. It seems ridiculous. Apparently, he developed a way of somehow getting his car on two wheels to get past people, and other drivers tried to do it and couldn't do it and crash and whatnot. The only other person, apparently, at the time that could do it with his, was his cousin, but this was Roy Hall's way of passing on two wheels. Sounds very cartoonish. I'm going to go ahead <laughs> and I'm going to trust my fellow historians that they've got this, but... It paints kind of a picture either way. That's kind of the way it was. All right, so fast forward to Labor Day weekend, 1941. Three years have passed since the first races. The Atlanta Super Team are dominating. We're back at Lakewood Speedway, which have become like the prestigious southern home of stock car racing. This was the place to be. This is where the most fans came. This is where all the drivers wanted to win. This was the biggest race on the calendar. Say was coming in with two straight wins within the last two weeks and for some reason decided to change his car number from seven, which he always had, to 13. Dun, dun, for, for, dun. Yeah, for the for the listeners that can't see here, Victoria's eyes just lit <laughs> up there. With unlucky number 13, exactly now he arrived late to the race because he had just come from another race and so he arrived there and missed qualifying which meant these still the rules today you have to start in last place because you qualify to get you know a starting place however 35 laps in i can't find exactly how many laps but i think it's about 50 laps the race there so after 35 laps he had figured out a way to get to first place and he managed to win the race this was his third win in 15 days and he was unofficially named the national stock car racing champion on that day with his unlucky number 13 after the race he left immediately to go to dawsonville to spend the night with his family where he was woken up by surprise surprise another cousin am i going to offend a lot of your of your listeners when i say that it seems like everyone in dawsonville was a cousin at this point a resident of dawsonville parentheses cousin i'm sure disclosure it's not like this now Anyway we should anyway this story ends <laughs> tragically so we shouldn't laugh too much but anyway Sorry. his cousin wakes him up and demands 120 dollars for sugar that he claims he hadn't paid for for his distillery oh. say disagreed the two of them going to an argue, argument decided to drive to and this is where reports differ as to where they were driving but to a family member's place in order to figure this out however on the drive Woodrow his name the cousin is named Woodrow Anderson shot and killed his cousin in the car and dumped him by the side of the road. One day after being named national stock car champion, three wins in two weeks, he's on top of the world, he's just come back from last place to win, and he's now dead. He's still, what is he, 20... He's 21 years old, dumped by the side of the road on the Whiskey Trail. Oh. Isn't that crazy? Now... Uh, Raymond Parks actually purchased a beautiful headstone. I'm sure your viewers if they're into history would love this. If you go to the Dawsonfield Cemetery, there is a headstone there which shows his car and what Raymond Parks his cousin had done in porcelain. had had like a photograph of him like etched in. So if you look there it looks like there is a photograph of him but it's like in the stone. Yeah. It's it's the it's I would bet probably one of those beautiful brick gravestones. Did you go to see Georgia. it? I've just seen lots of pictures of it. I haven't made it up there. Yieldry. It's one of the things when you look at pictures, it looks photoshopped. But then you look, I've seen videos of it. It's its really beautiful. I encourage you all now to hit pause, Google it, but come back. <laughs> come back. I promise you. It's a really beautiful thing. Um, one month later, Japan bombed, uh, bombed Pearl Harbor. And professional stock car racing ceased. A lot of professional sports did, right? Yeah, because all the
0: men are going to all war. All the men are going.
1: Okay. And it's just, it's a wrong time to be doing it. One week after VJ Day, victory over Japan Day... And the conclusion of World War II, Lakewood Speedway announced they were going to have a race. September 5th, 1945. In fact, I believe that's within a week of the war ending. They were ready to go. Oh, wow. They were ready to go. It is time to introduce more characters into this story. Names that you will have heard. First being Ralph McGill.
0: No. He was a race car driver?
1: Nope. (laughs) He was not a race car driver. He was the opposite. All right. Ralph McGill is a fascinating... Now, I'm sure most of you will know the name. is a very famous boulevard that goes from downtown to the Virginia Highlands, connects with North Avenue. This guy's story is fascinating. Born and raised in Tennessee, he went to Vanderbilt University, but was kicked out during his senior year for writing an article criticising the school's administration. He then served as a Marine in World War I. He became a sports journalist... Eventually coming to Atlanta to become the assistant sports editor for the Atlanta Constitution, there he moved to news where he covered the Cuban revolt and the rise of Nazism. Because of this, he was promoted to executive editor of the newspaper and he used this platform to write about the horrors of segregation. Because of this, he got multiple death threats, crosses burned on his lawn, people left bombs in his mailbox, people fired bullets through his window. I bring that up to, to, to paint the picture that Ralph McGill was a tough, principled man who wouldn't back down and stood by what he believed in and was ultimately on the right side of history. However, he's the villain of this story. <laughs> don't get too far ahead of yourself here. <laughs> then we've got William Hartsfield. We'll get to uh, where no. I don't know who he is. Yeah, no. He's another villain of this story. <laughs> mayor of Atlanta from 1937 to 1962 is the longest serving mayor in Atlanta history. Uh, He coined the term, Atlanta, a city too busy to hate during the civil rights movement. So, this race was going ahead, September 5th, 1945. Ralph McGill starts writing scathing articles calling for the race to ban criminals. He thought that criminals, trippers, moonshiners were a bad example in this sport and they should be banned from racing. He reached out to Mayor Hartsfield for his support as the racetrack at Lakewood was owned by the city oh. and Hartsfield was on board. So race day, 30,000 fans show up. Hartsfield presents the race organizers with a protest demanding that criminals not be allowed to race.
0: Oh, so he was fine with the racing. It was the people that were
1: racing. It was the criminals. Oh. It was the trippers that he was against. They oh. were against the criminals racing. Eventually, after a bitter arguments, the race officials submitted, but at this point, all of the other racers went on strike. They said, we're not racing without the moonshiners, without the trippers. They are, they are us. They are one of us. Um, at which point the crowd started cheering, we want Hall. We want Hall. We want Hall. This is Roy Hall, the very handsome daredevil who the ladies loved. They're cheering for him. So this went on for hours and hours. Everyone stayed. People refused to leave. The race organizers refused to start the race. The drivers refused to race and whatnot. And eventually, the organisers said, fine, we're racing. And of course, Hall won in front of all the adoring fans. People went crazy. However, Ralph McGill and William Hartsfield refused to quit. And Hartsfield passed laws that meant that that every racing team had to have rigorous pre-race checks to make sure that no illegal activity was happening within the teams, which basically meant... If they found any liquor in the car that had been used earlier in the week or anything like that, anything like that, they couldn't race. Lakewood basically said, we can't operate like this, and they suspended racing only for a year. At this point, racing had just come back. One race in, 35,000 people. The biggest star of the day has just won. All the races are on the same side. Everyone's happy. We've just won the war. And suddenly Lakewood's like, we can't. These rules are too strict for us. We can't do it so along comes william henry getty france known as bill france senior or big bill he was another race car driver who had moved from dc to daytona boo daytona in 1935 to set up an auto shop now he had been racing in these races but obviously living in daytona he was like man i would love to move this down to daytona this would be so much better down there we have better what Daytona got there's better than Atlanta it's warmer year round I don't know I mean it had more of his house right it had where he lived there so on December 14th 1947 France began talking with drivers, mechanics and car owners at a bar in Daytona Beach resulting in the creation of NASCAR soon after Atlanta lifted its ban on criminals racing but it was too late Daytona was now the home of NASCAR.
0: So we can blame Ralph McGill We can and blame William Ralph McGill Hartsfield. and William Hartsfield. Oh my gosh. This is the most anti-Atlanta thing ever though, right? Because yeah. like Atlanta loves being the first of something and letting people do stuff here. And yeah. it's like they dropped the ball.
1: For one year. A one-year ban. And Daytona was like, we'll do it. We'll do it. So a little postscript here. Raymond Parks lived until 2010. He went on to dominate NASCAR as an owner through the 1950s. He was inducted into the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame in 2002, the International Motorsports Hall of Fame in 2009, and the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2017. When he passed away, ESPN called him the biological father of NASCAR. This is just a guy who, because he was arrested at, was it, 14 years old, maybe none of this would have happened. It's amazing. Lloyd Say, who tragically passed away at 21, he was inducted in the first class of the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame. And Bill France, that's the guy that organized in Daytona and created NASCAR, he described him as the best pure race driver I ever saw. Roy Hall, the handsome guy. Songs were written about this guy by Blind Willie McTell. Have you heard of him? Really, yes. And Jim Croce. Jim Croce, really? they wrote songs about this guy. He was a legend. He was a ro- he was a rock star in the 1930s, 1940s. He would eventually go to jail for bank robbery, and he had such a bad criminal record that he started racing under different names so the police didn't know where he was. So they couldn't know he was in town because when he was in town, they knew you know crimes happened. He was also inducted into the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame. Red Vote, the Mechanic. He was at that meeting in Daytona. And when they were trying to come up with a name, he was the one that put his hand up and said, how about the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing? It was Red Vote, that mechanic, who came up with the name NASCAR. Really? Isn't that cool? Yes. The guy with the fake wall, the mechanic who did the police in the front, the bad guys in the back, or the, the handsome guys <laughs> in the back. He came up with the name NASCAR, the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing. That was Red Red Vote. Uh, he's currently a, a, just a nominee for the NASCAR Hall, uh, Hall of Fame. He hasn't got in there yet. Well, I'm sure he will. And has been inducted into the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame. Ralph McGill, he won a Pulitzer Prize. You say you've read a lot of his articles.
0: Yeah, like, from the 60s. I didn't in, go that far back to the stock car racing.
1: But, like, he was, he was a good guy. <laughs> he was a good guy who just did <laughs> like general. He, he, like, to, to, to be pro-stock car racing Atlanta, you kind of have to be pro-criminal. He was anti-criminal. William Hartsfield, most known for? The airport. The airport. Hartsfield-Jackson Airport, the biggest airport in the world. The irony is that uh, Hartsfield-Jackson Airport was a racetrack. Yes. That was turned into an airport. And so it's ironic that a racetrack turned into an airport would be named after a guy who lost racing for Atlanta. That is very ironic. uh, That was his responsibility. Daytona? daytona international speedway brings in a billion dollars a year in annual revenue and what we have lakewood amphitheater (laughs) remains a very popular music venue to this day now what's cool if you go to lakewood if you enter on the south side through gate four you are on the old racetrack you can park on the racetrack you can drive that and the road to this day is still called lakewood raceway it could have, could have been Daytona. making a
0: billion dollars a year.
1: It could be Daytona. <laughs> Isn't that a great this story? This was the
0: best. This was great. And yeah. I didn't know a lot of that stuff. No. I had heard some of those names. I had no idea about McGill and Horsfield That's great. Thank you. Well, um, before we stop recording... You said yourself in the beginning, but if people want to hear more stories, shorter stories, but still as amazing stories, where would they find them?
1: Yes, on TikTok or Instagram. I'd rather you went to Instagram. Uh, Anecdotal ATL.
0: I appreciate you coming to share this with us. Oh
1: no, I've been really looking forward to this. This was great. <laughs> Thank you.
0: So there you have it: the story of moonshine, day trippers, stock car racing, and the birth of NASCAR. Thank you everyone for listening. I have links to anecdotal ATL in the show notes in case you don't already follow. You must be doing that. Hope you have a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.